And good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Chuck Moore speaks Monday through Friday, 10 till noon, Eastern Standard Time, here at the Information Radio Network. You're welcome to join the program, 844-439-1391, 844-439-1391. My guest uh, this segment is Ryan Hook. He is the author of the book, Will America Fail? The Case for Hope. This book looks to me to be an answer to his viral video on YouTube, which attracted over 2 million visits, that being, If I Wanted America to Fail. Ryan, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Good to be with you, Chuck. Ryan, you represent and you express the aspirations of the younger generation, uh, people who are graduating uh, college, people who are finding that uh, the job market has contracted. They're wondering what the future looks like in this country. You know, these are people who are, are waking up to the fact that the uh, utopian ideas of the older generation, including myself, have failed. And uh, you're expressing uh, very solid and very positive ideas with regard to where to go uh, in this effort to, uh, to restore the country. So, uh, first of all, the main thrust of your video, uh, and uh, probably covered in your book, is uh, deals with the issue of energy and uh, global warming. Um, I would imagine that uh, I'd like you to talk a bit on that and also talk about some of the reaction that you might have had from, um, I guess you might say, the establishment with regard to the questioning of global warming. Sure. Um, I've, uh, I've worked on energy and environmental-related issues for a long time, and it was actually one of the things that motivated our original video, If I Wanted America to Fail. It was released on Earth Day in 2012, which was a fitting time, I suppose. But one of the things that I've always said is everyone wants clean water and clean air. There's no debate on that. The question is, have we catapulted past the point of common sense? I think we have. Um, I think that regulations in this country cost over a trillion dollars a year. And I know that the environmental portion of those regulations, over $281 billion, and those costs are disproportionately borne by small business owners an average of about $4,000 per worker to comply with them. And that's unsustainable, and this administration has done nothing but expand it. Barack Obama's opportunity after 2008 was to prove to millennials that his ideas were actually solutions. He could have created an entirely new generation dedicated to the proposition that government works, but he blew it. There was no FDR moment. There was no new consensus. And the reality has been Millennials now remember two Barack Obamas. They remember candidate Obama and his promises, and they remember President Obama and his failed promises. And I think that's become the signature political event for our generation. I hope you're right about that, um, but yet it didn't seem to come to pass in 2012, although he, um, I don't think he did as well, and there certainly wasn't the kind of cult-like excitement sure. um, then. Um, regarding environments, I think that you're, you're mentioning that the, the massive federal web of regulations and the scare tactics around global warming to justify those regulations, not only have they hurt the economy, but they really haven't done anything to improve the environment. And I think that uh, we can look to local solutions to environmental problems as having been much more effective. I mean, I the city of that. Chicago, for example, yeah, I mean, they sued the city of, uh, of Milwaukee for dumping, um, y you know, pollution into Lake Michigan. They won the lawsuit, and they cleaned up the southern part of Lake Michigan. It didn't require a federal I involvement. 
So I think that uh, environmental regulation is best handled where people live. And uh, you, uh, you also, I, I think that indirectly you question the, the orthodoxy of the whole climate change international establishment. Uh, where do you fall on that? Is that something, because after all, if that really is true, and if it's man-made, number one, we should be concerned, and number two, we should take a look at the policies of the global warmers and, who, and how that isn't doing a damn thing about it anyways. You know, we've even seen in recent months uh, scientists who work for the Obama administration can come out and say this science is anything but settled. And we need to move very carefully and very cautiously when it comes to enacting policies with potentially disastrous economic consequences uh, based on a lack of perfect scientific data or even complete scientific data. There's no doubt that the thing called climate change exists. The climate has changed over eons. It's just a geological, climatological fact. The question is, are human beings affecting it, and if so, how much are they affecting it? And that, that, that science is far from settled. And I don't know about you, but I worry any time I hear someone say the debate is over. I always wonder, is their position so weak that it cannot withstand debate? And that's what I think the case is with some of the international climate movements right now. They've become so bent on an agenda that has absolutely no regard for the economic consequences, the toll in real human jobs um, and real poverty in the third world that would be enacted if their agenda were to proceed. And that's what bothers me about kind of the, the global warming movement today. Oh, I mean, look, I couldn't agree more. I mean, they wrap themselves in absolute scientific certainty, which in and of itself is not scientific. But what's even more revealing, I suppose, about their agenda is that what they're suggesting doesn't do anything of the kind in terms of reducing air pollution. What they do is they allow the third world countries to pollute and probably pollute a lot worse than the industrialized countries, and they're basically transferring money to those third world countries. Sure. I mean, there's well, nothing to do. Us, there's no... Right. They're, they're yeah. asking us to tear down our house, but they're not asking the major polluters of tomorrow, China, India, and so forth, to do anything about theirs. Not only is it going to be ineffective, to your very point, but it's going to put us at a huge economic disadvantage going forward. And one that I think in the long run is a tiny drop in the, drop in the bucket. Scientists are now saying that the human influence on the climate is maybe 1% to 2%. These are scientists who've worked for the Obama administration. I think we need to seriously ask ourselves whether that drop in the bucket is going to make a big difference at the same time that we're rendering ourselves economically uncompetitive to future rivals like China. Now, Ryan, in your video, If I Wanted America to Fail, you don't actually answer the question, but I think you're implying, or more than implying, that people who enact these crazy policies, they seem to want America to fail. And what you're saying now, as you said, and even within Obama's own uh, scientific advisors, that uh, you know, if only 1% of uh, any climate change allegedly, even there, is due to human actions, and yet Obama is out there, John Kerry is out there saying this is the biggest problem that in the world and that, that it's a, a major, it's bigger than, internet, than terrorism. Mm -hmm. It brings you to the question of, um, I mean, are these people either completely uh, insane or are they wittingly uh, advocating policies that do want America to fail? Right. Are they complicit or just completely incompetent? Um, you know, I don't know their hearts. I don't know their minds. I think that they have created a political constituency around this 
bizarre, almost pseudo-religion of environmentalism, and now they have to feed that constituency, which is why you hear them talking about it constantly, why you hear it's part of their campaign, the never-ending campaign from the White House. I'll say this about if I wanted America to fail. I'm, as you know, better known for my pessimism than my optimism. And if I wanted America to fail went viral after it depicted a, a seemingly bleak vision of America's future. Um, a lot of conservatives thought that Barack Obama's reelection sealed our fate, and frankly, I was one of them. Um, but I was consumed by this one question. Why did my generation, the generation most demonstrably harmed by this president, send him to the White House twice? And then other questions followed. Is this China's century? Is the revolution of our founders now obsolete? And then ultimately, will America fail, which became the title of the book? The answers surprised me. And that's what this book, that's what this new video are about, surprising answers to really difficult questions about the future of my generation and, and our country. Well, well, let's talk about that. I mean, your uh, your generation uh, in 2012 did reelect Obama. I thought that um, mm -hmm. Paul Ryan, uh, I think, drew the case well during his uh, acceptance speech when he made reference to young college graduates uh, lying in a bed in their parents' bedrooms, looking up at the wall at posters of Obama and Che Guevara, and mm -hmm. having a, a crushing college loans and no job, and yet there they are going out and voting for him again. What's going right. on with that? I mean, is this what Rush Limbaugh describes as the uninformed voter? I mean, why are they doing it? Well, I think there's no doubt that there's some level of undereducation here. There's no doubt about that. In 2008, I think millennials voted for Barack Obama. And in 2012, I think they voted against Mitt Romney. But what's important to keep in mind is what has happened since. Since sending him back to the White House, millennials have abandoned the president they once eagerly empowered started with the NSA scandals, and then it got worse. About a month after the Obamacare rollout, just 36% of voters under 30 approved of the president's job performance. And that's actually three points lower than the national average, which was reported in the same poll. Fewer than half of millennials want to reelect Obama, and majority of voters under 25 now say they want to pull him from office. Um, their support for his agenda has collapsed across the board since the rollout of Obamacare. And I don't think I don't think that it's an accident. Um, in, a, as to why they voted for uh, Barack Obama in 2012, I think I can sum it up by saying there's always every election cycle has what I call the idiot issue. And the idiot issue is the thing mm -hmm. that everyone knows about, even if they don't know anything about politics. And in 2012, that issue was same-sex marriage. Every millennial, even if you knew nothing else, had an opinion on same-sex marriage. And it became the very basis how a lot of those millennials self-identified politically. And you can look at it. If you look at even self-identified liberal millennials, there's an age gap that's emerged within the Democrat Party. You look at older self-identified liberals, they sound like actual liberals. They say government should do more to solve problems. They blame poverty on circumstances. They say Wall Street hurts the economy. And they think Washington should do more for the needy, even if it means more debt. But the, the real news is that majorities of young, self-identified liberals disagree. I think that's because many millennials misidentify themselves politically. They define their politics based on narrow social, uh, narrow social issues. And I think what that right. means over the long term is that, look, winners win and losers lose. 
and Barack Obama is a loser. Ronald Reagan created conservatives, but Jimmy Carter created conservatives too. And historically, bad presidents create coalitions for the opposing party. Well, well, this is first of all, where did millennials fall on the question of same-sex marriage? And secondly, the other two issues that I saw come out of 2012 that are interesting and troubling is that uh, people voted against Mitt Romney because he was rich. People didn't like a successful businessman as if this is old left-wing propaganda, that somehow there was something wrong with his being successful, which is something we should be celebrating in this country, and that uh, somehow by his earning what he earned, he was taking something away from someone else. Never mind the fact that John Kerry is the richest man in the history of Congress, and he made his money by from uh, his second wife's first husband's trust fund. I mean, Mitt Romney earned his money the old-fashioned way. And the second issue was the success of the so-called war against women. That resonated with women. I saw that. I mean, women were like standing around, yeah, Republicans are in a war against women. Younger women believed this, and they voted on it. So my question to you is, since they've, uh, you say that the younger millennials have walked away from the... Taking Back America, one listener at a time. Chuck Morse speaks. Thank you very much. And my guest is Ryan Houck. He's the author of Will America Fail? The Case for Hope. We're talking about uh, the uh, views and the attitudes of the millennial generation, of, amongst which Ryan is one. And, uh, Ryan, we, uh, you're saying that uh, the younger generation is not as oriented toward old left-wing collectivist, big government ideas but they do adhere to certain liberal social ideas, among them same-sex marriage. And I think you're right. My my 15-year-old daughter, who's otherwise very conservative, is in favor of same-sex marriage. You know, I mean, this is just um, kind of a given, I suppose. Um, yeah. I, is that the case? And what what are the, some of the other issues there, and why? I, look, I, I think you're right, Chuck, um, and I think the polling bears that out. The issue of same-sex same-sex marriage, as far as millennials are concerned, it's it's settled. Um, their position on it is not entirely dis- – and I know this is at odds with, with the view of traditional conservatives on the right, but their position on it is that it's very much like the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Um, and it is difficult to try and persuade a millennial, even a conservative millennial, otherwise. On the other side, though, there are a lot of opportunities for conservatives when it comes to making our economic cases. What I mean by that is this is a generation that – flavors its own soda, designs its own sneakers, builds its own playlist. It is built around personal freedom. And they're now more likely to say businesses strike a fair balance between profits and the public interest. They're more likely to say Wall Street helps the economy, that businesses pay their fair share of taxes, and they own or aim to start a business at much higher rates than prior generations. Only 6% say they want to pursue a government career track, and the reason is obvious. They've they picked Barack Obama because he was going to fix things, but they found out he couldn't so much as change a light bulb. And at the same time, they watched intrepid entrepreneurs change the world. And I think that's affected them. Unlike previous generations, it's not the political campaign or the social movement that is the object of their ambitions. It's free enterprise. There's a lot of survey research and data to bear that out. And I know there are skeptics. I, I get the joke on millennials, okay? They're a bunch of hoodie-wearing, tech-addled narcissists addicted to bottomless barrels of parental charity, and they sit at home and 
watch uh, play Minecraft and eat Hot Pockets all day with their participation trophies and their Russian lit degrees. I mean, I get all of that. What's important to understand is that they were changed by the recession. They became more frugal, more business-minded, more entrepreneurial, and they were changed by Barack Obama. He had an opportunity to, to convert them into full-time generational uh, converts, and instead he created skeptics. I, just, I think people ought to remember where boomers were a few decades ago. No one ever thought they'd toss out the tie-dyes and cut their hair and stop voting for George McGovern. They still listen to the Rolling Stones, but they also listen to Chuck Morrison, Rush Limbaugh, and Glenn Beck, and they elected Ronald Reagan. Brian, the um, you know the the Obama administration, I think, was bargaining on popularity when they passed forth the largest government uh, program since uh, Lyndon Johnson, that being Obamacare. And uh, I guess my question to you is, is that seen by younger people for what it is, which is a hamper on business, which has basically, uh, you know, kind of thrown a wet blanket on top of businesses with regard to hiring people and functioning? You know, do they do they reject this big government expansion? You know, I remember hearing from a millennial, he was 27 years old, and he said, if it's such a good idea, why do they have to force it on us? That was his question. And that's, that's the right question. And the answer is obvious. It's not a good idea, which is why they forced it on you. So, yeah, I think they do get it. You'll find polling on, uh, on Obamacare among millennials, you'll find it consistently polls poorly, partly because they get the joke and partly because, as I said earlier, it's the generation that's built on personal freedom, on choice. And Obamacare isn't about choice, it's about control. The other thing that you'll right. see, particularly among younger millennials, is that they're trending much more farther to the right than older millennials. Older millennials were much more likely to say they were liberal. They remember George W. Bush, and they blame the war in Iraq and the crisis in 2008 on him. But younger millennials, they remember Barack Obama and only Barack Obama. Now you've got roughly 40% of these younger millennials, under 24, saying that they're conservative, and that's roughly consistent with the general population. They're actually three points more likely to call themselves Republicans than everybody else, and that is a significant difference. Barack Obama is about to, by all, by all indications, sign an executive order offering amnesty to upwards of 10 million people. Mm-hmm. Where, does the, where do the millennials fall on that? Are they believing the rhetoric that's coming from uh, Obama and his old left allies, which say that this is uh, being nice and good and uh, you know tolerant. Yeah, it's a really good question, and I think the politics on this issue are extremely fluid. If you were to depends on how you ask the question, basically, if you were to ask if millennials favor immigration reform, I think the answer is yes. Ask them that way. If you ask them what they think about Barack Obama's plan to essentially grant amnesty. Um, without solving the problem in terms of rule of law or border security, I think you'd find that they would oppose it. What they tend to be most skeptical of when it comes to the government exercise of power are things like the IRS scandals and the NSA snooping. That's when they first, that's when Barack Obama first saw his support among millennials drop. And I think that's going to be true of issues that look like they're raw exercises of power. So the answer to your question on executive orders in general is I think conservatives have a case to make to millennials here. This is a generation that's all about personal freedom and personal choice. 
and they're skeptical in large part thanks to their experiences during the, the Bush administration. Um, they're skeptical of raw exercises of federal power. And so I think if we make our case to them on that basis, we'll have a lot more success. This is maybe more of a cultural question, Ryan, but where do you see millennials in terms of um, their overall culture? Are they involved? Are they interested in marriage? Are they believers? Are they people of faith? Do they hold um, traditional values? Do they believe in morality, you know, like moral standards? I mean, where, where are they in general when it comes to those broad issues? That, that's a really good question. Look, I, I, I'm as quick to lament the crumbling state of the family as anyone else. Um, it's the toughest social issue we face, bar none, in my opinion. Um, but I don't think we can conclude it's Sodom and Gomorrah out there either. Uh, teen drinking, smoking, pregnancies, violent crime, incarceration rates, they're all down dramatically over the past few decades. Some of these social problems have even reached all-time lows. It is true that weddings have grown less common, but about 70% of unmarried millennials still say they want to get married, and the majority of those remaining say they're not sure. Here's what I was most surprised to find out. When asked about their biggest priorities in life, only a tiny fraction of millennials said fame or, or something stupid like that. 52%, the largest group by far, said being a good parent, top the list. That's surprising because most millennials haven't had children yet. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's just, uh, it kind of goes to an overall cultural snapshot. I'm not sure there's an easy answer to it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that um, if, if the group is more conservative with regard to adhering to conventional morality and, and faith, that doesn't mean they're going to vote conservative. You know, that's, no, that, I don't that, know. That when, it comes, when it comes to conventional morality and faith, I would say that is one of my generation's weak spots. We are less likely mm -hmm. to be regularly religious than prior generations. And I don't know that that's purely a maturity thing. I think part of that is a cultural facet of this generation, and it's unfortunate. I do think it's a mixed bag. As I mentioned, there are a lot of social ills that have improved as millennials have aged. I think one of the most remarkable things is their relationship with their parents is quite different. Uh, boomers were all, and Gen Xers to an extent too, they were all about rejecting the morality of their parents in a lot of ways. They moved as far from them as they could. Millennials like their parents. Um, it's surprising for a younger generation, but a lot of it has to do with the Great Recession. A lot of boomer parents welcomed adult children back into their homes, and, you know, it's I think for a lot of different reasons, the recession probably being the primary one, they've developed a close relationship with their parents and want to live as they My guest is Ryan Hauk. The book is Will America Fail? The Case for Hope. Ryan, does uh, the Republican Party have a, a case to make uh, to attract uh, millennials? Um, and if so, what would that be? Yeah, I do. I think we do have a case. I think it's primarily on economic grounds. I think there are probably three things we've got to do. First, we've got to recognize that this generation and this century, they're built on the idea of personal freedom. The Bloombergs, the Obamas of the world, they're dinosaurs. We've got to emphasize the freedom-based, choice-based elements of our own timeless philosophy. The second thing we've got to do, and this is going to be the toughest to do, is look in the mirror. I know principles don't come from polls, and they shouldn't be jettisoned in the name of political expediency, period. 
but we've got to ask ourselves if the GOP view on same-sex marriage is consistent with our commitment to the idea of limited government and personal freedom, because that is the question millennials are asking. And if we can't figure out a good answer to that question, then we shouldn't be surprised if they don't think we're the party of personal freedom. The third thing I think we've got to do, and this is, this is one of the most important, is we've got to kick this doom and gloom spell. We've got to find our optimism again. Uh, Ronald Reagan inspired voters, particularly young voters, by telling them they didn't have to settle for lesser lives, that individuals can be big only if government is small. His optimism was in stark contrast to Jimmy Carter's whimpering pessimism. And of all the generations out there, millennials remain the most optimistic about the future. They are looking for a party that shares this outlook, and they're looking for a candidate who believes they've got a shot. Do you see any such candidates uh, coming down the pike right now in this uh, midterm election? And what about uh, 2016? I think the midterms are a setup for 2016. You know, Charles Krauthammer had a column this morning. I think he hit the nail on the head. He said that 2014 is about putting together a Republican Senate so that we can actually be for something. And that's not to say that we haven't passed bills in the House. We've passed hundreds of them. But we can actually put forward a national agenda, tell people what we stand for, which is what you can't do when you control only one House of Congress, and force the president to either negotiate or veto things, and then set up something for 2016. On 2016, Personally, I don't have a candidate. Um, I'm looking. I'm interested. I hear a lot of interesting ideas. Um, but I've told you what I think is most important. I think we need a candidate who emphasizes personal choice. A candidate who's not. Localism is, a, is an idea that could be embraced by both left and right. And yep. uh, it's something that seems to be represented here. Yeah. You know, Chuck, that was just a tour de force of points that I pretty much all agree with, and many of which I discuss in my book. I mean, you're right. We don't need government to convene us anymore. We have convened ourselves. The online communities today are as vibrant as, ever, as any ever convened by government, and technology has been the key. While government has slammed windows and doors to uh, economic development through regulation and taxes and so forth, technology has opened new ones. I'm not justifying what government has done, quite the contrary. But I am saying that opportunities still abound because of new technology. On top of that, especially because of 2008, this idea of big is bad. Big, big, whether it's in front of unions or government or business, and now even religion, millennials don't trust it. These institutions are, and it's ironic, that is, as, the, as we've become more global and as the world has shrunk, the institutions that we trust have also gotten smaller. They've gotten much smaller. Governments are most effective at the local level. Businesses are most trusted at the local level. You even see all of, I mean, just from a cultural standpoint, all the bi-local movements and locally grown and so forth. These are part and right. parcel of this larger generational cultural trend toward local. Right, and it's actually a very conservative idea that that's embraced by a lot of people on the left. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's something that I think... Uh, it just crosses the board. It's where the economy is going. We are moving in a direction just by virtue of, of necessity and of, of technology uh, toward, toward uh, much more autonomous, individual, local entities and uh, people as uh, self-operating, uh, self-sufficient citizens. 
And, uh, you know, this is why, you know, it seems strange that Barack Obama is coming along with this massive new federal program that could have been carved out of the old New Deal. You know, mm-hmm. that, it just doesn't yep. resonate. I don't. I think the people are looking at this thing and saying, well, what is this about? Here I am controlling my own life more. Do I need the federal government to come in and start to impose these health insurance laws that yep. are difficult and that aren't functioning anyways? You know, that's a good point. I just, in Will America Fail, I talk about a, a coming great transition. Um, and I do that in the context of FDR and Herbert Hoover during the Great Depression. Um, as you acknowledged earlier, I, I don't think much of FDR's uh, entitlement state revolution. But I do acknowledge that he was a man for his time. Uh, the challenges that we faced, whether it was the Great Depression or winning World War II, were industrial-scale challenges. And FDR dragged America's government into the industrial age long after, you know, culturally, economically, socially, we'd already converted to the industrial age. Now we've got the opposite thing happening. Everybody thought that Barack Obama, at least everyone on the left and a lot of millennials thought Barack Obama was going to be FDR. And then we, it turned out he was Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. It turned out he was not at all for his time. He was the last gasp of the old order, trying to use that industrial scale. Diversity. He's the author of the leading textbook on adolescence, as well as more than 350 scholarly articles and a dozen books. He has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Psychology Today. He's a regular guest on NPR. He lives in Philadelphia. And um, this is a topic that uh, I have a great interest in, both personally as the father of a um, a 15-year-old daughter, my one and only, who has an adolescent brain, I suppose. And, uh, you know, as, as a broader social issue uh, amongst the many I look at as a radio talk show host. So um, hopefully uh, Dr. Steinberg will be with us shortly. The, uh, the producer has the phone number there, and I just spoke with Dr. Steinberg off the air. He's waiting to be called and um, gave him the number for this um, the show so he could call in. So if everybody starts uh, buzzing to properly, <laughs> we'll, we'll get it done. Um, my questions for Dr. Steinberg, I suppose on a personal plane, and I don't get too deeply into personal questions here, but they are, I do in this case only because I think they're reflective of um, questions that we all have about, about teenagers, is uh, number one, um, how have teenagers today changed, if they've changed, from teenagers perhaps um, in in previous generations? Um, and I look to, for example, my own daughter. Um, and um, you know, this past summer, my daughter was involved in behaviors, and I mean that in the best sense, that were not engaged in when I was a teenager. Uh, back in the 1970s, around that time. And that is that uh, she would spend a lot of time at night looking at a computer screen and uh, reading, you know, particularly the one site that she loves, which is Tumblr, and watching videos, playing some games. She's not a big gamer, but she has some. And uh, in the process, she would be up until all hours of the night. Um, and uh, then, of course, the next day, she would be sleeping 
until quite late. Uh, Dr. Steinberg, uh, thank you for joining me this afternoon. Mm-hmm. And um, I apologize. I apologize for the delay. My guest is Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, is the author of Age of Opportunity: Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence. Um, Dr. Steinberg, I had the opportunity before you signed on to to do the proper introductions. So uh, that will be part of the uh, that's part of the program live and the uh, the podcast. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Good, happy to be here, uh, Dr. Steinberg. I guess uh, you know my my interest in this is both personal and also um, as a radio host uh, looking at a social issue. Personally, I'm interested because I am the father of a 15 year old daughter, um, okay. my one and only, and. Uh, Something that I mean, I wonder. First off the bat, has uh, have have adolescents changed today from where they were in this country, maybe back in the nineteen sixties and seventies? And if so, how have how have they changed? Well, I think probably the most important change is that adolescence is much longer now as a period of development than it was then. That's because kids are going through puberty earlier nowadays than they were then. Um, and because it's taking people longer to move out of adolescence and into the conventional roles of adulthood, like full-time employment or marriage or parenting. So um, the the average American boy today goes through puberty two years earlier than his counterpart did in the 1970s, um, and we see a comparable drop in the age of puberty for girls as well. So adolescence starts a lot earlier, and I think it often takes parents by surprise. Um, on, on the other hand, uh, you know, we see people staying in school much longer and delaying getting married and staying economically dependent on their parents much longer. So the average 25-year-old today is twice as likely to be a student, um, as was the case in, in her parents' generation. So to me, that's the biggest change. Adolescence is now a 15-year long period. Well, I guess by, by, I find it alarming that adolescents, that the puberty would be onset earlier than previous. What are the um, the ramifications of that? First of all, physiologically, putting aside psychologically, is that something to be concerned about? Is that good or is it bad? Um, generally speaking, it's bad. Um, so w- women who go through puberty early are at much greater risk for uh, breast cancer and cervical cancer than women who go through it later. There's a little evidence on men and testicular cancer being associated with early puberty. Most of the, actually, I think most of the harm of going through puberty early is is psychological in nature. So um, girls in particular who go through puberty early are at much greater risk of depression, eating disorders, substance abuse, precocious sexual behavior, lower school achievement, and the list is quite long. For boys... It's not so much associated with depression, but it is associated with problem behavior. So they're more likely to use drugs and alcohol and um, and commit delinquent acts. Um, the, the reasons that kids are going through puberty earlier um, are several. Probably the most important one is obesity. We know that kids who have more fat on them go through puberty earlier than those who are thinner. And um, as I'm sure you know, we have an epidemic of childhood obesity in this country. Um, but also contributing to it are, are um, what are called endocrine-disrupting chemicals, which are in uh, food and in cosmetics and in plastics and in pesticides. And it's been shown that 
the exposure of our children to these chemicals, which is almost impossible to avoid, um, is making them mature earlier also. And then finally, there is some evidence that um, exposure to artificial light, particularly the kind of light that's emitted from computer monitors and smartphones and tablets may be playing a role in this as well. Um, so it's, it's, not, um, it's not something that we should be happy about, and uh, it's something that parents should, should you know, try to you know, prevent from happening by making sure their kids eat well and trying to keep them not exposed to these chemicals to the extent that they can and maybe limiting some of their screen time. You uh, I mean specifically, what do you mean by puberty as earlier? What was the more traditional age of puberty, and what is it now? Well, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, the uh, girls in America began menstruating at about 14 and a half, and now it's about 12. Um, so, and that's the, the age at which girls get their first period is what we typically use to track historical changes in puberty because we can measure that very accurately and doctors keep records of that. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's two years earlier now than it, than it had been in, in the most of the 20th century. So it's, um, you know, it's significant. What, uh, why, what do you account for the rise in obesity? Is this because of, is our food being treated chemically more often than it was, or, or is it more to do with the fact that, um, you know, back in the old days, um, you know, you, you ran outside and played for hours. Now, if, now children and young people are driven everywhere. There's not as much physical activity. I think it's a combination of both. Um, what the research says is that it probably has more to do with diet than it does with the sedentary behavior, though both are, are part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, we, we now know that sugar is, is really bad for you in terms of putting on weight. And kids um, in the United States lead the world um, in, I, I think, the consumption of, of sugar soft drinks. Um, we also lead the world in the consumption of French, uh, French fries by adolescents as well. So, I mean, they, they, if you eat a lot of sugar um, and a lot of processed food, um, it is going to increase your risk of being obese. So I think that's probably the, the, the main contributor. Although we know that, um, and, and I talk about this in the book, that schools have, you know, many schools have cut physical education out of the daily activity of adolescents. Right. And in lots of places, the only kids that get exercised on school days are the star athletes. Um, nobody else does. And, uh, and that, you know, has to be playing a role as well. You know, that's so true. Like, I, I remember in school in my day, you'd have a 45-minute recess after lunch, which people could go outside and get some fresh air. Now my daughter has no recess at all, and the lunch is only 20 minutes. Um, also, this past summer, she was um, doing what apparently a lot of kids do at that age, which I found out, up very late at night with the computer looking at uh, various videos and um, even some games, although she's not a big gamer. But I'm talking like uh, 1, 2 in the morning, sometimes 3 or 4 in the morning, uh, I yeah. found out, because we'd be asleep. And then the next day, she'd sleep until noon or 1 o'clock. And apparently, right. this is becoming uh, more common with uh, people her age. Right. I mean, it would have been um, unthinkable when I was a kid. Yeah, there are a couple things that are going on. First is, um, at her age, 
rightly, short, shortly after kids go through puberty, there's a shift in the sleep-wake cycle that is biological in nature and that's not voluntary. So people do have a harder time falling asleep at night um, when uh, during adolescence than, than they do during childhood or even during adulthood. You, you kind of go back to the old sleep-wake cycle after you're about 25 or so. So when, when teenagers complain about not being able to fall asleep at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night, there's some, there's some truth to that, that it is physiological. On the other hand, um, having all these devices and things to do to, you know, to, to pass the time then is also keeping... Speaks. Thank you very much. We're talking to Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, is the author of Age of Opportunity, Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence. This book draws from research all around the world, really, uh, with regard to uh, adolescence, the brain of the adolescent, how it's changed uh, in these past decades, where we are today, and you've got some positive ideas with regard to uh, what we can do uh, to help. Um, in the case of my daughter, she is actually very self-disciplined at this point. She's gotten back into school, back to a schedule. She gets to bed on time, and uh, she asks. To, she comes right home and does her homework. Not every day, of course, but she actually seems to have a strong sense of discipline. I'm not sure where that comes from. It's not uh, necessarily the case with a lot of young people. But uh, you talk about self-discipline as a very important attribute um, to help uh, teenagers. How do we foster that in our teenagers? Um, well, yes. I mean, let's first sort of um, help everybody understand that so, that determination and self-control. Uh, these are probably the most important traits to have um, for success in school and and actually um, in life. And many many studies have been done showing that kids that score high on measures of self-control do better um, in the classroom. They have better relationships. They're happier and they're less likely to develop mental health problems. So it's terrific that your daughter um, is that kind of person. There are um, a number of things that we can do both at home and in school to help this trait develop. There's a style of parenting that I describe in the book called authoritative parenting, which is parenting that combines being very warm um, with being very firm. Uh, and uh, many, many studies, I mean, we have about 40 or 50 years of research on this now, um, show that kids who've been raised by parents who follow those basic principles um, are much better uh, in in the realm of self-control than than kids whose parents are more permissive or who are more um, autocratic, you know, being firm but not being very warm. Uh, so um, despite all the attention that it's gotten in the, in the media, tiger mothering is actually not very good for kids. The parents shouldn't raise their kids that way. Um, the, the, in, in school, um, some of the things that we can do that would be helpful would be, first of all, to make school more challenging, um, because we know that self-control systems in the brain develop in response to uh, d demanding that the brain do a little bit more than it's capable of doing. And um, as I discuss in the book, our schools, for the most part in the United States, are not very challenging. Most high school students say that school is very boring and very repetitive, so we can help build self-control by making schools more challenging. Um, there, are some, there are some specific um, things that, that uh, parents and schools can encourage that would also be helpful. So we talked about one of them already, that's sleep. Um, not getting enough sleep interferes with the development of self-control. Uh, and um, it's, so, it's so important to make sure that, that your teenager gets adequate sleep. 
Um, another is exercise. So one of the most one of the most beneficial activities for your brain uh, turns out to be aerobic exercise. We talked about that a little bit um, also. And then finally, there's some research showing that mindfulness training um, in the form of, let's say, meditation or even yoga um, help develop brain systems that are important for self-control. So, um, and, and, and these activities, of course, are good for adults as well. They're very good for, for your physical health and your mental health. So encouraging your child to do that kind of stuff is, um, is going to be helpful too. You know, Lawrence, you make reference to the schools as uh, not being interesting enough, as being boring. I mean, in my, the case of my daughter, she's in a top exam school, so she's it's very vigorous, and I think and she responds well to that. It's a traditional education. But uh, I think it's safe to say that since the 1960s, our educational system has moved away from a more cognitive-based education to a more behaviorist modality. You know, we, we've changed... Um, for example, um, the teaching of reading from phonics, which is English is a phonetic language after all, to look-say, mm-hmm. which involves the children having to memorize thousands of images of words as if they're pictures. It's almost like hieroglyphics. And I would imagine that's had something to do with um, some of the uh, social problems and psychological problems that children are experiencing. And there are other modalities as well. The new, new math, which involves guessing. Uh, getting rid of spelling, getting rid of cursive writing, um, you know, more uh, a political education as opposed to uh, actual cognitive, you know, the uh, teaching of history by jumping around and not doing it through a timeline, the removal of things like memorization, you know, kind of all these new methodologies. Uh, is there a connection between this and um, sort of many of the ills that have beset young people in, these, in this day and age, which, of course, the very extreme example of which are school shootings? Um, I don't know. I, I... Thank you very much. My guest is Lawrence Steinberg. He's the author of Age of Opportunity, Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence. We're looking at uh, uh, his research on uh, the development of the adolescent brain, where we are today as a society. Uh Lawrence, I mentioned to you the uh, shift from uh, cognitive to behaviorist education. Um, I've heard complaints from young people that, and and I think it's reflected in your comments, that there's just not enough content in education. You know, you go through uh, uh, classes in social studies or some other things, and, you, you, you know, there's nothing, there's a lot less there than meets the eye. There's a lot of kind of gobbledygook. There's no real hard actual knowledge education where people learn how to think on their own, where they develop the ability to cognitively and critically examine issues and and gain knowledge so they could become an independent person. It's all this kind of behaviorist, kind of soapbox stuff, this method teaching. Uh, Fortunately, at my daughter's school, there's only one change agent this year. The other teachers seem to be pretty straight arrow. But I think that most... uh, High schools, particularly, and elementary schools, are, are riddled with this sort of thing, and it's creating dissonance in young people. It's, I think it plays a role in the rise of things like depression and, um, and anxiety and probably obesity, and ultimately uh, it is uh, po- probably or possibly responsible for some of the terrible situations we've had with a rise in mental illness and uh, violence. 
I, you know, I don't, I don't think that there's any evidence for that. Um, I think that uh, the issue really is whether our schools are demanding enough, not the particular teaching method. You know, there are these fads that go in and out of, of fashion in the way we teach things to kids. Um, and some of them, you know, have evidence behind them, and some of them don't. Um, but I, I think the, the, the really key issue is whether our children are being challenged in school, because as I was saying before, it's challenge that um, is going to, to help kids develop things like self-control, and that will help protect them against some of the other kinds of problem behaviors that we see. Right, and, and I'm not claiming there is evidence, but I would suggest that um, behavioral teaching does not challenge people. It condescends to them. Uh, and um, that the methodology of previous times, which would be cognitive, it was challenging, and uh, the result was that there was less, I mean, young people were not depressed. I'm not saying they weren't some, but you didn't have these epidemics of depression and anxiety, and then uh, obviously these things are then treated with psychological drugs, which have their own problems. Um, and I think that you can see that the rise in that. The other, other issue that I see changing um, that possibly could have affected or affect adolescents is the what I call the the sort of the MTV phenomena. MTV was brought in in the 1990s, and what it does is it flashes hundreds of images before the eyes of a young person in fast order, um, without an opportunity for someone to digest and cognate these images and and put them into context. And, and I think that the result of that and and much of the media has been that. Um, that, that, that people are not learning to think. They're, instead, they become receptacles where they basically sit there like couch potatoes and absorb all of these fast images. And there's been kind of a diminution of information. I mean, if you look at, you know, young, you know, young books now coming out, you know, they, they're written, they're kind of dumbed down. I mean, there's not like a lot of opportunity for, for a young person to, to read and get ideas. It's more like... Um, you know, images, you know, quick, short sentences. Everything has become very, almost like a flashcard mentality. Uh, do you think that's the case? And if so, has that affected the adolescent mind? Um, I certainly think it's the case that um, that kids today are stimulated with these short bursts of information, um, whether it's, you know, on their... Thank you very much, and... Uh... I again want to thank Ryan Hope for joining me in the first hour. Um, and um, just now, uh, Ryan is the author of Will America Fail? And just now, Dr. Lauren Steinberg, Age of Opportunity, Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence. Uh, Dr. Steinberg apparently had a run, so um, he's, uh, he's moved on to, uh, moved off the show. I, don't, I hope it wasn't that he bailed out uh, after I asked a few tough questions. Whatever. He's a... Uh, He's, you know, he tends to be on the liberal side of things, uh, as I've uh, noticed from the book. And uh, questions about um, education um, make seem to make liberals a little uncomfortable um, with regard to the uh, changeover of our education system from one of cognitive learning to one of behaviorism and propaganda. Um, this is not something that uh, uh, most liberals are comfortable discussing. And uh, they don't feel the need to discuss it because they, they, they're, they, they've got such a control over the, um, 
the cultural and educational high ground that why bother? Why be questioned on it? Um, I, I would argue that uh, a lot of the, um, the psychological problems of our young people is due to the fact that our education system has moved from cognitive to uh, behavioral. Um, is there enough research to back that up? Yeah, there is. I think there's plenty. I can't quote it or cite it immediately. But uh, even if there isn't hard research, I think that anyone who could be a casual observer of culture and of, uh, frankly, of science, political science even, would have to notice that uh, children in this country growing up in, in, in an education up until maybe the 1960s or mid-1960s uh, were not riddled with depression. They were not riddled with anxiety. They didn't need to have psych drugs. Um, they were not unhappy, filled with angst. You know, and they were learning how to read. They were learning cognitively and going on to, uh, to fulfill their own lives as independent thinking people. That is no longer the case. I think starting in the mid-60s, you had the introduction of the uh, so-called progressive education. I'm not holding myself up as, as anything other than, you know, a concerned parent, number one. Number two, a concerned citizen who uh, does a radio show, so I know a little bit more than, than your average Joe when it comes to issues. Mainly because I interview people like Dr. Steinberg and others. But from my perspective of having discussed this issue, for many, many years now, and having had on experts from all sides, that uh, that the problem with our, our adolescents is that uh, the education system has removed cognitive learning, where young people are actually taught in a brick-and-mortar sense, in an organized sense, the actual information that they need to think critically and how to think about it, and then how to absorb it. And also a belief in God and a belief in what, what this country means, why we're an exceptional nation, you know, which is something that's a basic to education in any nation. That these things have been replaced by behaviorism, uh, by just gobbledygook, I mean, nonsense. And, and young people know this, um, where they're being taught to how to have self-esteem that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you can't teach self-esteem. You can get self-esteem from accomplishing something. Self-esteem is a byproduct of experiencing accomplishment from having done something that resulted in a level of success. That's how you get self-esteem. You don't get self-esteem by listening to a load of crap from some you know, change agent who's going to teach about why we all should have self-esteem. It's like teaching about teaching. <laughs> it's about, uh, it's like I remember Jerry Seinfeld's show, a show about nothing, you know, which was funny, but, you know, in a way it was a kind of a, a social satire uh, on this on this culture. Um but, you know, I would argue, again, that, that the situation is more sinister than that. Um, what you have with education and who what has become prominent in our education system 
I think, since the 1960s, is an unholy coalition between the far left and the far right. And when I say the right, I mean that in conventional terms. Um, by that, I mean corporate interests. Um, and corporations are not necessarily made up of conservatives either. In fact, most of them aren't at the highest levels. And that is that from the, from the corporate side of things, you have an interest in creating human beings as human resources, people who have become somewhat dumbed down and auto automated in a way so that they can be pliable, um, docile employees of big corporations uh, where they perform functions and don't question authority too vigorously or think in terms of a broader picture. And then on the left, you had people like uh, John Dewey, who is the, considered the founding saint of um, progressive education, and his so-called frontier thinkers. These people were socialists who had an ideology which advocated the um, ultimate goal of a one-world ant colony. And, of course, that also would require a changing of the, the behavior, the minds, even the chemistry of our young people uh, so that they could also be docile, so that they could be set up to become collectivized. Their brains could be fused into one gigantic international beehive where there would not be such bourgeois affectations as individual thought, faith, family, uh, the right of the sovereign individual to derive rights from God, not from the state, all of those things. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that um, that's, that's why we have adolescents who are unhappy and who are anxious and depressed and who are, you know, and who are, who are, who are committing suicide and, and homicide. 